Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a special. Dining in Atlanta, the next course. Two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, local eateries are still adapting. So we'll speak with Beth McKeeben, editor of Eater Atlanta, because she's been covering all of this. She'll, just, she'll discuss how Atlanta's restaurant landscape has been coping. And we'll hear from three local restaurant owners themselves about the path forward. That's all just ahead on this special edition of Closer Look. But first this, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says the city's housing authority has resolved a years-long dispute with property developer The Integral Group. Dickens made the announcement earlier today. Atlanta Housing and Integral Group have reached an understanding in this matter. With this settlement, Integral and the developers will immediately return to business of fulfilling the vision that residents, developers, and Atlanta Housing has had and agreed to years ago. The core of the dispute, dozens of acres of former public housing land. The Integral Group maintain a decade-old contract gives it the right to buy the land at a discount. Atlanta Housing CEO Eugene Jones Jr. said the agreement will involve the agency selling some of the contested land, but didn't disclose much further details after that. He said the deal still requires approval from the Atlanta Housing Authority board. In other news, a group of Atlanta's largest property owners want Georgia lawmakers to postpone or change a proposed Buckhead City Hood bill. The Atlanta Business Chronicle's Crystal Edmondson has more. Cousins Properties, Selig Enterprises, and Jamestown are just some of the companies that signed a letter to Georgia lawmakers urging them to bump the Buckhead Cityhood bill or change it so that Atlanta keeps Buckhead's commercial district, which generates about $57 million in annual property taxes. A move to separate Buckhead from Atlanta emerged in 2020. Supporters of the bill say it's in response to crime and a lag in city services. A bill that would put the proposed Buckhead City on the 2022 ballot is currently in a state Senate committee. From the Atlanta Business Chronicle, I'm Crystal Edmondson for WABE News. And speaking of state lawmakers, a group of Republicans in the Georgia Senate have introduced a bill to prevent transgender students from joining the sports team that matches their gender identity. Governor Brian Kemp has listed this type of legislation as a priority. WABE's politics reporter Sam Greenglass has those details. Right now, the Georgia High School Association, which governs school sports, follows whatever decision a school makes about recognizing a kid's gender. But Senate Bill 435 defines gender by the sex marked on a kid's birth certificate. The bill would effectively prohibit public schools and some private schools from allowing transgender students to play on the sports team that fits their gender identity. Supporters say this will protect cisgender girls from unfair competition in athletics. 
Georgia Equality Director Jeff Graham says lawmakers are trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist. And he says school sports aren't just about competition. They're also about learning and a sense of belonging. He hopes lawmakers will see that, too. When they look at the harm this very debate has on an already vulnerable group of kids, that they will realize that using children to gain political points is a dangerous precedent to set. Georgia Republicans have proposed similar bills before. This time, they'll likely have the governor's backing. During his State of the State address, Kemp promised to promote, quote, fairness in school sports. The governor has pledged to sign bills on several education topics this term, including how school libraries evaluate books and how teachers talk about race in classrooms. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Now coming up next... No, Suzanne Vega will not be on the show, but this is a catchy song called Tom's Diner. Senior producer Sam Whitehead has always told me that this song gets on his nerves. However... What we will be talking about is that it's now been two years at a local restaurant and eateries are still adapting to the pandemic. So what's the outlook for our favorite neighborhood spots? It's a special edition of Closer Look. Thank you, Susanna. Dining in Atlanta, the next course. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Hold up, see, it's what I write, and Miss Lady acting like me in jail. Says she ain't got no extra hush puppets to sell. Bank can't see food, making me hit the door with a mind full of attitude. It was a line at the beautiful JJ's rib shack was packed too. Looking to be one of them days when mama ain't cooking. Everybody's out hunting with the family, looking for a little soul food. Ah, uh, yes, a tribute to some notable Atlanta restaurants. From the mighty, mighty Goody Mob. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. And like those mentioned in the song Soul Food, we love our favorite neighborhood spots, right? Restaurants and eateries. But they continue to face an unpredictable future nearly now more than two years into the pandemic. So what's the outlook for our favorite neighborhood dining spots? You know, restaurants have had to adapt to varying public health guidelines and, of course, shifts in customers' dining habits. And you've likely noticed some of these changes in the Atlanta area, like more outdoor seating, parklets, can never have enough conversation about parklets, walk-up windows, pop-up shops, and more. But which of these trends are here to stay? Now, we're going to dig into all of this as we present a very special edition of Closer Look called Dining in Atlanta, The Next Course. Joining me now to jumpstart today's show is Beth McKibben. She's been following all of this. She's the editor of Eater Atlanta Beth, welcome. I dig those glasses. I wish our listeners could see those. Those are very, very cool and hip. 
Well, thank you very much. It helps me see when I'm writing and reading. <laughs> Let's begin here. Is there any concrete data that reveals how many Atlanta restaurants, eateries have permanently closed due to the pandemic? Do we have any data on that? Um, to be honest with you, no. Um, but it's, I, I mean, just because of the nature of the pandemic, some places have just closed pretty quietly. Um, some of them have uh, faded away, unfortunately, um, due to financial issues, um, lack of uh, staffing because people have moved on to other industries, but um, it's, and it's still going on there. It's reverberating. Um, I thought 2021 would probably be the peak of that, but I have a feeling that um, some of the repercussions financially and otherwise um, are going to start to reverberate throughout the uh, industry in Atlanta. And we're probably going to see more unfortunate closings um, over the next year. What have you noticed the last two years in terms of maybe throw out one or two trends that you have noticed in terms of particularly with the smaller restaurants in our favorite neighborhoods? And I could sit here and list all our favorite neighborhoods and I'll forget someone and they'll send me an email. But what have you noticed the last two years? Uh, I definitely think that there has been two big things that we've we've started to track. Um, one is the 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 need for more outdoor seating and a lot of restaurants um, a lot of restaurant owners a lot of new restaurants that are coming up have really put a serious emphasis mm -hmm. on their patio or their outdoor seating options um, so you're seeing that you know also with the city doing this parklet program uh, some of the street closures that you saw over the summer where like over in Edgewood uh, in the uh, the entertainment district over there. Um, I also think that the pop-up scene, which has always been incredibly strong mm -hmm. in Atlanta because of the entrepreneurial um, love of entrepreneurship here in Atlanta has been super strong. But I think over the pandemic, restaurants have really embraced the fact that our scene is so diverse and these pop-ups are showing that. And so they're bringing them into the kitchens on days that they're closed, the restaurant's closed or giving them, you know, residencies for a certain amount of time. So I do think those two things are not only kind of pandemic related, um, you know, uh, trends, but I think they're going to be here to stay. I, and I especially think that the pop-up scene is something that we've been watching for many years, but I think this, the pandemic has really kind of brought um, that scene into a real serious focus. And, you know, Beth, we sent out a survey to, to uh, I guess, uh, I want to say thousands, but I could be incorrect. I, we sent out a survey to millions of people, and we okay. asked them about Atlanta dining habits and their dining habits. And April said this, it is easier to get takeout from your favorite restaurants now. She says many did not have online or call-in ordering available in an easy-to-use format. And she said, I also love that many restaurants are offering alcohol to go on their drink mixes. And she says, now I almost prefer that to in-dining person. And I know I'm spending more because I can pop leftovers food directly to the fridge. So I intend to order a bit more. So are you know, are restaurants saying, you know what, we've seen, we did see an increase in folks right. wanting to order. But I talked to a lot of restaurant owners and we'll talk with the next group about this. Some of them weren't prepared for this onslaught of folks calling saying, hey, 
you know, it'd be great if you could deliver or we come pick it up. But most of these restaurants didn't have like a 12 line <laughs> phone system, right. you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and honestly, like some of the some of the restaurant owners that I've spoken to over the last two and a half years, they started out, you know, again, weren't prepared for it because most most restaurants, most restaurants are not set up to do takeout in that way, in this way. Um, you know, especially some of the institutions that we have here in Atlanta that are more of table service and, and full service restaurants, they're not equipped to do that. So they pivoted very fast. Um, and some of them have dropped takeout completely because really? it's not, it doesn't work for their restaurant and it never did. It was some, it was unfortunately a way for them to survive over the last, you know, the first year. So you're starting to see some restaurants dropping it or making takeout less, having less emphasis on takeout. Um, whereas you're seeing more restaurants that other restaurants that are totally embracing it. Um, I think about, you know, Whiskey Bird over in Morningside being mm -hmm. a prime example of some of a restaurant that embraced the pandemic's changes to their business. And they put in a walk-up window, which is now a permanent part of their business. They now have a sidekick business. Um, they, they're, you know, they've done online ordering. I mean, it's really become a thing that's part of their restaurant. Um, and they've identified with it, whereas other restaurants have kind of scaled that portion of their business back as in-person dining starts to kind of ramp back up again. Uh, it just, you know, it's online ordering is a really tough situation. You know, you've got the third party delivery services. They're taking, you know, huge amounts of profits off the top. Mm -hmm. You know, restaurants do not need to have any more profits taken away from them. Um, you know, delivery drivers, you know, are fighting for health insurance, they're fighting to be, you know, taken seriously, and they're getting kind of caught in the crossfire of these big business third party businesses. So, you know, when you are ordering online, go directly to the website of the restaurant you're ordering from. And if they have a link to an online ordering option on their website that's where you need to go because so, that's who they're, that's who they're working with so through your lens because i don't want to get you know who sent me an email through your lens you're suggesting folks go to the re the website of the restaurant and order through there yep. as opposed to that app that shall remain nameless is that yep. what you're saying yep. because the, you know they're they're the restaurant has to either they've built an online ordering system, which you can do, or they're going through a specific um, service. And it's what service they're using that they're paying to be part of that you need to be ordering from. So that my only suggestion to folks is if you're going to order online, you go directly to the website of that restaurant, because it really will make a difference to the <laughs> restaurant. But you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because online ordering has become such a huge part of the business model for restaurants over the last two years. And again, you know, it's, it's kind of, it was kind of a necessity for a while. And now you're starting to see those restaurants weighing whether the benefits are there for them or not. And you're seeing some restaurants scale back and you're seeing others saying, we're, we're cool with this. We're going to stay with it. Well, let's talk about health and wellness and all this, because we also ask folks in terms about how likely they would be to dine in a restaurant if all guests are required to be vaccinated. 78% of the respondents said, yes, they would do that. Masks are required except while actively eating and drinking. That was 76%. There are no restrictions concerning vaccinations or masking. 3.8%. I'm sure 
that is not lost on you, that folks would prefer to dine in a restaurant or eatery that does require mask, except when yes. eating, of course. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I would say that the vast majority of our readers are very pro masking wherever you go uh, and that they would prefer even to dine in a restaurant that's actually requiring not just vaccination, but booster shots. And so, you know, it's this is a really weird time for restaurants. We thought we had kind of gotten over that initial hump. And then, of course, Omicron came along in November and completely just threw everything out of whack for restaurants who most of which were, you know, most of these restaurants were relying on that big injection of cash that Mm -hmm. comes with the holidays. And I can't even tell you, I mean, there was a point where I had a list going just for my own personal knowledge. I could, I stopped counting how many restaurants had closed or Mm. said, forget it. We can't do this. Like we can't stay open for the holidays. We've got too many people out or, and you know, it's there's so many uncertainties right now for restaurants that that I think more so in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, with the diners feeling with my at least my readership is being more, you know, prone to I need to wear a mask where I when I go out, they do take it seriously. A lot of my readers watch what mm-hmm. what restaurants are and what restaurants aren't taking, you know, which ones are and are taking the pandemic, you know, or at least their health and safety seriously and the, the that of their staff. Well, let's let's focus on staff because we, we've been hearing about the great resignation. We know mm-hmm. that a lot of folks did not turn did not return to the restaurant and, and landscape landscape in terms of you know employees. We've heard we've heard from restaurant owners say, "I don't have enough staff." I have called restaurants, tried to order some food, and they said, "You know what? We are short staff. We don't." Yeah. There was a one place I love their wings, and the young woman that answered the phone said, "The cook." Is not in today, and we don't have a backup. <laughs> and no. I said, yeah. So you know that's a reality. What have you been hearing from restaurant owners in terms of being able to? Well, we know retaining staff was an issue, but recruiting new employees, and this has to do with also being able to offer health insurance. Right. I think you know it's this is a really difficult subject for restaurant owners because you know they're human beings and they want to take care of their staff, and that's why they're in. You know, most of these folks are they're in this for customer service. They love being around people. They love serving people. So it's a it's been a tough year for not just the restaurant owners but staff members too. You know, and I think the restaurant owners are just trying to to grapple with the fact that the industry has always had an issue with living wage. That you know, especially the tipped workers. You know, making you know average two dollars and thirteen cents an hour plus they have to have tips. Well, if there's nobody dining in the restaurant, those folks don't they don't make any money. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no tip. So a lot of restaurant owners that I've, that I've been speaking to over the last year have really started to engage the idea of, of either adding service charges to the checks to help offset the costs of health insurance or providing that, that booster for living wage. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot being talked about within just the industry in general, not just in Atlanta, but throughout the uh, United States about, how the industry has to change in order for them to keep people, you know, in the industry. We're losing a lot of talent Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of people that start off as hosts or maybe they're, you know, busting tables could be the next amazing chef. And we're losing those folks or, you know, the line cooking back because they, 
they're either not making enough money mm-hmm. or they're afraid because a lot of these restaurant staff members have been unfortunately bearing the brunt of a lot of the anger and, you know, nastiness that has kind of come out regarding vaccinations and masks. And so they've, they've bore the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's been hard. I think restaurant owners are in a difficult spot because it's a razor thin margin that these businesses are running on and any additional costs is starting to like, it just adds up. So it's like, what do you, what do you cut loose to mm-hmm. keep people employed? So it's like, this is how they're starting to look at their businesses now. And you know, Beth, we all know, I think this is fair to say Atlanta is notorious for, you have a, a restaurant that opens and then it's gone in six to nine months or a year. But have we right. seen some new restaurants come online within this two years of the pandemic? I know that there was a restaurant that took the, the place of the old watershed. I think it was up mm-hmm. in Buckhead. Yeah. I went up there. I, they, I don't know if they've opened. They were supposed to open during the pandemic. Not sure where they're at now. That's a huge space. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's, I believe that was a uh, Bodica and it's, it's, um, you know, it, that's the other thing I think we're starting to see trending out is these cavernous restaurant spaces. I do believe that part of the pandemic that has been a positive thing for at least for the Atlanta uh, area, Metro Atlanta as well, is that we are really starting to kind of fall back into the fact that neighborhood restaurants are really important mm-hmm. to a city. Um, yeah, there's a lot of destination restaurants in Atlanta, but I think one of the things that was really interesting um, when Kevin Gillespie announced a couple of weeks ago that he was going to be closing cold beer on the Beltline, mm-hmm. I thought what, what he told me about why he was closing it was really kind of, it, he hit the nail on the head. It was that, you know, he said, um, we need a concept that takes into account that the majority of our guests are now Beltline residents and not destination diners. Um, mm. Supporting a restaurant you know, is, is we have to be sensitive to who is dining there that, um, that they want to eat at a restaurant regularly. They don't want to just go there once a month or when Mm -hmm. they get a promotion or when they're celebrating something special. So I do think that the newer restaurants that are coming up, um, are taking that into consideration in the spaces that they're scouting out in the city too. A lot of them are second and third spaces. So they're coming in like these, these restaurants, they may be taking over another restaurant space. Um, And I just, I do think that the neighborhood restaurant is making a comeback and I'm so happy to see that because it promotes not only, you know, dining where you live, but also it promotes walkability. The fact that we don't always have to get in our car to go somewhere um, there will always be destination restaurants and mm-hmm. that's, we need them, but not every restaurant has to be a destination restaurant. I hear you on that. And, you know, from our survey, Lori says, quote, it's exciting to see some food trucks blossom mm-hmm. into brick and mortar success. I also yep. hope more parklets pop up throughout town. And she yep. closes out with outdoor eating is the best. It is. I mean, I prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is right up my alley, but yeah, I yeah, I do th- I do think that the parklet, you know, it's this is a new concept for Atlanta, these parklets and these on-street dining um, you know, uh, areas. So I you know, because again, we are a car-bound city. 
Um, parking is at a premium. And I think that what, why these, in particular, the neighborhood restaurants are embracing the parklets is because they can, and they know that the residents of that neighborhood want it. Mm-hmm. and they're listening and that's the restaurants that listen to where they live are going to do very well because they're keyed into the community in which they're serving um i love the fact that restaurants are starting to not just serve and in, in the dining room but they're reaching out in other ways whether they're starting up charitable organizations whether they're getting involved in things that they feel incredibly strongly about um, whether it be social, uh, you know, issues or political issues, they're becoming involved in the community and they're becoming part of the community, which is what restaurants really are all about. But Beth, we did see some long, I mean, staples, restaurants mm-hmm. and eateries that have been around for decades. Some of them have shuttered for, for good, though. We, we, we've seen yeah. that. And that's been the, the, the tragedy yeah. of this. What do you think that through what you've been doing and talking to restaurant owners, is there a sense of, of a little optimism or pessimism or in between? I'm going to talk to restaurant owners in a minute here, but what what's your sense of how they're feeling going forward? Because it's clear we're all going to be living with the pandemic for or the coronavirus for a while now. That's right. Right. I think that if you'd asked me this question a month ago, I would tell you that they're probably feeling pretty poorly right now. But I I think that as this particular surge is starting to slow down a little bit and, you know, the vaccination rate is again, starting to pop back up again, the fact that kids are now going to be involved in being vaccinated. I mean, I think there's some hope on the horizon and, you know, as the restaurant industry is always a pretty resilient industry and they're used to doing a lot of really crazy things to survive. And it's, it's this, I mean, this is definitely probably the one thing that no one predicted, but, Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that the restaurant owners, especially in Atlanta, it's a very tight knit community of people. This, this is a big city with a small town heart. And there are a lot of restaurant folks that know each other. They've worked with each other in the past, they're friends, they help each other out. And I think that if we did not have such a tight knit community of restaurant people, that it would be a very different situation. This isn't New York. Mm-hmm. This is a very connected industry here. And they all really do truly want each other to survive and they all want each other to, you know, thrive. And so they help each other. And you see that through the the actual industry people themselves, but you see it through the diners too. Mm-hmm. They want their folks to be there. They want that neighborhood restaurant to survive it. So yeah, these closures have been hard, but I think in, in, in relative terms, I do think that there is, there is some hope. They're nervous. Yeah. They're not, I'm not going to say they're not nervous. <laughs> they're nervous, but I think they're less nervous now than they were in December. I'm going to put you on the spot because listeners of this oh. program, they know how I, I am when it comes to two things, barbecue and ice cream. <laughs> I just will, and maybe, and folks will email me and say, well, you on the wrong side of town, Rose Scott. Okay, that's fine. Um, I, I, I would like to see more barbecue spots, or if you're listening, restaurant owners, St. Louis style ribs on your menu. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. <laughs> 
Let me before I let you go, uh, Beth. What have you all been working on also over at Eater Atlanta? What's been kind of? I know you've been keeping tabs with this pandemic, but what else are you all working on over there? Well, I think you know we're we're trying right now to kind of balance our coverage between a lot of the service journalism that Eater is known for, you know, maps, guides of neighborhoods, that sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously new restaurants are going to be kind of the the crux of, of coverage that we do but we're we kicked off a classics restaurant series um starting with Nakato. Nakato is 50 years old this mm-hmm. year oldest japanese restaurant in atlanta it's right around the corner from us oh it's so great i love it they're such a wonderful group of, of folks and the family is so great so you know, we're trying to kind of lift up those those restaurants, those institutions that have kind of been the foundation layer that has been part of our scene for so many years. Uh, we're definitely going to continue following the Parklet, um, you know, a situation happening out of uh, City Hall, because I do think that they're still grappling with how to make that work. Um, I'm hoping that the nightmare becomes a thing because mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, we have such a wonderful night life you know um industry here and we want to see that thrive but we have some things we need to work out and this nightmare will help that so um yeah we're, we're going to be continuing to kind of follow the politics follow the social trends um and really kind of follow what what the you know atlanta city government is doing mm-hmm. um to kind of bolster the the restaurant industry here all right beth mckibben is the editor of eater atlanta when we return it's a roundtable discussion with three Atlanta area restaurant owners. Beth, thank you so much. You can hang out if you want to. We appreciate it. You can do whatever you want to on this day. Normally, we tell you to go go somewhere, but we're not going to do that this time. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. All right, now. And this special edition of Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. Amplifying Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Our theme for today, Dining in Atlanta, the next course. In April of 2020, not even a full month into the pandemic, I spoke with Atlanta-based chef Deborah Ventris, owner of Twisted Soul Cookhouse and Pours, located in northwest Atlanta. She talked about how even then the pandemic was already having an impact on restaurants like hers. I had to start trying to think ahead, you know. Um, you know, I don't know what worst case scenario is, um, you know, but, you know, just trying to think of, you know, what's next. And, you know, I think initially um, it just kind of came like a boom. Um, and I think, you know, not just myself, but quite a few of us restaurateurs, you know, people in the business were just, you know, running with our heads cut off, trying to decide what do we do. Mm. So what about now? Chef Deborah, as I'm allowed to call her, returns a closer look to share how Twisted Soul is now faring and what lies ahead. And I'm also joined by Jamie Russell, co-owner of Poor Hendrix in East Lake, and also Liz Hernandez, owner of Arepamia in Avondale Estates. They've all been profiled here on Closer Look. Full disclosure, I've had food from all three of these places, and they're wonderful. I love them, so don't send me an email because... I wouldn't say that if it wasn't true. Welcome to you all. Thanks for having us, Rose. All right. Let's begin here. Um, I'm going to start with you at least. Take a few minutes to just kind of describe to our listeners what the last two years have been like for you and in, in, in your restaurant. 
it's been a big, big, huge test yeah. from being a cook, chef, a, a, you know, uh, owning the business, a, talking to our guests and trying to survive during this past two years, this craziness. Mm. Uh, thankfully, is more uh, people that are actually with us and not against us. But there's always, you know, a few that are kind of like, I don't know where planet they're from <laughs> because they, they, they just doesn't make any sense. But um, I mean, it's been, uh, like I said, a big, huge test for us. And mm-hmm. I think everybody that owns a restaurant has been like a super uh, person to trying to survive mm-hmm. and try to take care what you love, you know, mm-hmm. and also trying to take care the people that work for you in a scary time. Um, now I think that we passed 2019, 2020. If you survive those past two years, I think you're going to be fine. Okay. You just have to continue, you know, loving what you do. And, and I think that's the most part. I think that the restaurant, they survived the past two years and they are alive right now. I think they can make it through and, right. and be okay. Jamie, what about you? How do you describe these last two years? We had you you all on um, during this pandemic. What's it been like? It's been a long two years. <laughs> um, yeah, Lisa said it right. It's It's been a fight. Um, definitely keeps you on your toes, trying to figure out the next move you're going to make or how you're going to pivot to the next situation and make it work. Um, but yeah, I agree. If we're still here, I think I think we're gonna be okay. All right, <laughs> Chef Deborah, how do you describe the last two years? Um, I would describe it as a roller coaster um, because there there's been downs, but there has been a lot of ups. Um, the support of our communities um, coming out, backing us, you know, trying to make sure we're okay, mm-hmm. we're surviving, um, has been wonderful to see um, and and feel. Um, sometimes I think that's you know, the nudge that kept me going is is knowing I had the support of so many people behind me. Hmm. Let's stick with that then for a moment, Chef Deborah, and I'll stay with you because I I know earlier on we talked, you had started offering, you know, prepackaged meals, to-go meals. You wanted folks to, to know that, hey, we can still do something. How difficult was it for you to shift when that mandate came down? Okay, restaurants are going to have to shutter for a little bit. How was that being able to transition for you? Um, it was, you know, confusion, definite confusion. Um, you know, my my model was not one for carry out. We didn't do it. Um, you know, I flipped and pivoted so many times, you know, I still have to write it down like, okay, what did you do then? You did this, you know, when I remember and talk about it. Um, and and we still are pivoting, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, but we, we continue to keep going. I mean, I've, you know, I came close at one point of hitting our original numbers, um, less seating. I learned lessons. I saw things that we had been doing wrong, you know, in terms of profitability. Um, you know, well, we found out that, you know, our customers were sitting in our chairs for way too long. That was something that, you know, came out of this for us. Um, 
And once we reduce seating, we also put a limitation, you know, as much as we possibly can on how long, you know, you could sit. Um, mm -hmm. And people were understanding of it because, you know, that's what we needed to happen in order to make the figures to pay the bills that had remained the same. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, we found out you know, quickly that, you know, we were not making optimum use of, of our table space, of our seat space and allowing people, you know, and, and a lot of people don't understand this. There's value to every chair and how many times it's turned is important to our survival. You know, so coming in and deciding you want to sit in that chair for three or four hours is not helpful to us. Mm. Um, you cannot you know, make up that ticket price of a new customer turning that chair over. I see. Jamie, what about you all over at Port Hendricks? You had the shift, transition. Take us through that. Oh, so many transitions. <laughs> um, yeah, from to-go only to patio dining and to-go to limited indoor, back to patio. Um, you know, we weren't really designed to be a takeout restaurant, but we made that pivot pretty quickly. And, um, you know, it, we had to rethink our menu and our food and think about what travels well, what holds up. Um, you know, it's not like the customer gets to eat it two minutes after it comes out of the fryer or off the grill, you know, it might be half an hour before they're getting into it. So it, it definitely, made us rethink um, our menu items and what we were serving and also keeping it interesting for people. We're a neighborhood restaurant. That's what we've always wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And our bread and butter is our regulars. Uh, so we try to change our menu up, keep it interesting. Uh, a lot of our regulars come in one, two, three times a week um, and they don't want to eat the same thing every time. So uh, we've really focused on on kind of giving our customers what they want and what will work in the situation. Chef Deb talked about lessons learned, and she just mentioned in seating. She said, you know, we realized our customers were sitting too long. What lessons did you all learn with poor Hendrix? Um, I think being, we thought we were lean before, but really being lean, um, keeping a much closer eye on food costs, uh, alcohol costs, um, what your margins are on all those things, finding ways to, to trim the fat where you can. Um, because yeah, your, your bills are the same, but you're not, you're not doing the same amount of business when hmm. you can't, you know, a lot of our, we're a bar too. So we depend on, on alcohol sales. And well, folks don't always drink. So when it was, when, when it was allowed that folks could, you know, order takeout, did you see your alcohol sales sort of increase a little bit? That did help for sure. That did help. Uh, still not, you know, not the same as having a full bar of people drinking cocktails and enjoying themselves. But um, it's exciting to have that return a little bit now. Mm -hmm. um, Liz, what about you all um, transitioning and shifting? What was that like for you all? Oh, um, it was definitely uh, a great uh, big roller coaster in, in that part because in that time when the pandemic hit, we didn't have a system for online orders. We did have 
a few to go order where people call in orders and we'll have it ready. But uh, when the pandemic hit, it was a nightmare to answer the phone. Mm. It was call, 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 call. And it was like, this is not going to work. And that's why uh, we're going to step back. I step back and I'm like, okay, uh, the pandemic hit. We need to close because we don't have the system. So what happened, which a lot of people didn't realize that a lot of restaurants did not have the online system. But when the pandemic hit, everybody wanted to have a platform for online orders. Mm -hmm. So it would take, you know, almost like two months for you to have that system in place and working and going live. So it took me that time because there were so many high demand for everybody wanted to have a system. So we finally got it. And when we went live, we literally opened two days after we had the system. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we had the system, everybody, I mean, we advertised and we did on social media that we have uh, to go order. So that was a a big challenge for us because I wasn't experienced online order. And when we opened, that was so many orders at once that (laughs) we just went insane crazy because there were just so many in uh we have to just figure it out how to do it because then everybody wants it at the peak hour. Everybody want to pick it up at 6 30. I want to pick it up at seven. So we just have to let our guests, hey, you might come, you know, at 6 30, but you might have to wait because all our food is made to order. So that was one uh, big uh, new thing for us. And then the other challenge was, I think, for everybody, and I mentioned all the restaurants, was uh, everything is to go so therefore you're going to use paper products mm-hmm. so the paper product on, on national wide it was back order mm. and because it was back order also went triple in price so it was like a completely mess everywhere uh, and challenge yes. for us capitalism were, <laughs> the con- <laughs> oh my god so that's why when I say we were really they were really testing everything, every little part of us, because we have to figure it out. Okay, we cannot find this container where will actually work with our food that can travel and hold and, and still, you know, uh, presentable and in good condition. So that was another challenge. Y'all should have told folks, look, so, if you bring uh, your own Tupperware, <laughs> we'll give you a dollar off. That's <laughs> um, yes, yeah, because everything went in, in price, and they say, "Oh, it's gonna go down." It hasn't gone down. You know, the price has stayed stayed really really. Expensive. So that was uh, one of the second challenge, and then the other challenge was, of course, our guests coming into the restaurant. Mm-hmm. With the, I never stop requiring masks to come in inside the restaurant. Why? Um, and I never did stop that. Why? Listen, I, because I feel, once, because I'm not a doctor, uh, I'm not going to risk anything uh, for us uh, if I know a mask, it can help. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% of that, but thankfully, I really haven't get COVID myself personally, but I have people uh, actually very close to me the past, you know, because of COVID. Um, I wanted to protect not only the guests that come to the restaurant, but also my employees. And while we were at work in the restaurant, none of my employees got COVID. Actually, one, like three of my employees got sick with mm-hmm. COVID. It was actually when we closed for two weeks the restaurant, 
and to take a break. And of course, they went to travel, they went to see their family. And when we're getting ready to open back up in January 11, two, they were sick. So let me ask you this. I just want to be clear. You know, we so at least let me ask you this. I want to be clear to make sure our listeners understand. You're saying you do not require mask to for folks. Oh, I come, do. You do. Okay. I just want to be clear on that. I, I want to shift. I, I want to shift I, for a second and talk about talk about your staff and your personnel. And just real quickly, did you lose? Did you have to lay off anybody? And and, and Chef Deborah, I'll, I'll start with you. Just yes or no. Did you have to lay off any staff? Um. Or initially, yes. Uh, but we try to shorten the time as much as possible. Um, one thing we did um, was we, we never signed up with those apps for delivery. You know, we thought if, if nothing else, we could bring our staff in, you know, charge for the delivery and that money go directly to them. Mm-hmm. So we had to get real creative, you know, on, on how to put money in their pockets Um you know, so they were out for a short period of time. And, uh, you know, then a lot of people just disappeared. You know, when mm-hmm. we started wanting to get back open, um, we had to actually hire new people. Uh, once we did hire, you know, a, a some new staff, uh, that staff has remained solid with us, you know, from the beginning. So, um we've kind of we've looked at we looked at things differently in terms of staff um you know we said they were our family but they really became Mm -hmm. our family during this period of time um and we have you know we've bent over backwards to make sure they Mm -hmm. are taken care of you know they've had paid vacations you know there's if anything is wrong you know it's, it's for us, I'm sorry, it's no longer that the customer is always right because there's been instances where the customer has not been. Mm. You know, so the abuse that people have taken in the hospitality industry, um, we're not here for that anymore. You know, And we re- will respectfully ask people to leave on behalf of our staff. Mm. So just trying to make a better workplace for them so that they will remain in this industry um, it's, it's kind of what we've dedicated ourselves to for the last couple of years. Jamie, what over? What about you all over at Poor Hendricks in terms of staffing? And were you able to keep people? Did you have to shorten some folks' hours? Did you have to lay folks off? Uh, initially, yeah, we did furlough some folks. Um, it's really exciting when we got to bring, bring some of them back. Um, you know, we did lose some people. Um, that left the industry or I actually recently lost two of my employees that have been with us since we opened, you know, basically. And, uh, they both left the industry to, to go on to other things. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I totally agree that we have to make it a better work environment. We have to make it a place that, you know, you get paid fairly, you get treated fairly. You don't have to put up with, um, unruly guests who are being disrespectful mm-hmm. uh, and just having our employees backs and you know trying to make it the best work environment it can be i understand that at least what about you what about your staff did you have to furlough any of them were you able to keep many of them no um i was actually lucky enough that uh, i kept some of my people that's been with me for a long time um 
we definitely, I, when we were closed and we took care of them when we were closed and uh, we lost people, but it's because they wanted to leave uh, like two or three during the past two years. Mm. But we've been short staff for the past two years. So that's yeah. been another issue um, because, uh, you know, the season, restaurants goes on off season and in season. So um, that's been, uh, nor- it's a normal, you know, with industry that you sometimes get short people. Lisa, let me ask you this. Did at any point throughout all this, you thought about yourself closing down permanently, maybe taking a break or coming back later? Did that enter? Is that something that you thought about doing? I mean, uh, look, I, it's a good question because um, a lot of, I've been approached about opening other locations in other places. And I had the location inside the Surabon Curve Market. Mm-hmm. When the pandemic hit, uh, I had the two locations and it was really already a challenge to have two locations, you know, where you are 100% on the both of businesses. Mm-hmm. When the pandemic hit uh, and I had those two months, uh, so much time to, to be at home, not to move, not to travel, it kind of helped me to put my brakes and slow down a little bit because before the before pandemic, I wanted, yes, I want to open another one because you get excited mm-hmm. and it's your food and you love it so much. But then when the pandemic hit, it was like, wait, hold up one second. Yeah. You, you, you start thinking about priorities, right? And that's when I decided to close the Sudaban Curve Market because it was a little extra work. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, about what really was important to me was important is when I first opened my concert was I just wanted to give the best, you know, experience Venezuelan cuisine here in Atlanta. Gotcha. And I closed that one and I just focused on Avondale State, which has been the best blessing I did. Actually, I don't regret gotcha. it. Chef Depp, what about you? Did you um, think about closing of course of mm-hmm. course i did but that was really brief um well we're glad <laughs> yeah that was that was very brief um you know i have a lot riding on this and mm-hmm. you know um i felt like i'd struggled so hard to get to this point you know that honestly i'd be darn if if uh, some COVID was going to be what was going to take me out i hear you on um that. You know, so I, I did what I do, which is survive, you know, mm-hmm. um, that survival instinct um, kicked in. And, uh, you know, because of having a, a strong staff, you know, a strong family support also, not only uh, <laughs> did I, you know, hold up the one restaurant, I decided, oh, well, let's open up some more, <laughs> Yeah, you know, so we're in the process of opening more, mm-hmm. um, you know, but you know, focusing on neighborhoods um, that have been underrepresented, um, focusing on people who have been underrepresented, gotcha. underrepresented, um, and just trying to move forward and not, you know, be fearful of what's going to happen next because it's obviously something's going to happen next. But I don't want to live like that. Sure. And finally, Jamie, what about you? Did you all? And we're glad you're still open. But did you think about? Did you all think about maybe we should just shutter or shutter for? an extended period of time. You know, my husband and I own and run the restaurant together. So Mm -hmm. we kind of have 
all of our eggs in this one basket. So yeah, quitting wasn't really an option. Um, I think anybody who owns a restaurant is, is a, maybe a little bit crazy, but also very resilient and definitely, you know, we're fighters. So we're going to figure it out. We're going to make it work and get through it. Well, we're all glad that you all are still with us and continued success. We wanted to bring you all back to let listeners know how you all have been faring during, during this time. We really appreciate that you all were able to serve your communities. And again, y'all have great food. So I want to thank all of you. Uh, Liz Hernandez, owner of Arepamia, Jamie Russell, co-owner of Poor Hendrix, and Deborah Ventris, owner of Twisted Soul. Thank you all for coming back and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. This special series, this special theme show was produced by Daniel Razel. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead, Janine Etter, and LaShawn Hudson are our other producers. Kevin Rinker, he rides a bike and he loves food as well. He is our engineer. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. Remember, support your local restaurants and eateries. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.